I was going to say something profound and and completely mind blowing, but oh, uh, shit, I and just, it's gone. I forgot. It blew my mind, and I it just <laughs> scattered on the walls. You're too powerful if you know it all, Jared. That's right. <laughs> I glimpsed the infinite, and uh, it didn't stay <laughs> in my head. <laughs> Blinding. <laughs> Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. All right, it's your turn. Tell us about your story. I selected the story, The Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges. I've had this book on my shelf for a long time, and I was like, I got to pick a story from here eventually. When I was going through, I was like, there are so many amazing stories that he's done. I want to pick a story from here for every episode for the next like six months. <laughs> I- I'll resist, but <laughs> it's like really hard to-, to pick which one to do. So had you read this one before? I had not read this one before, no. I knew of it though. Like I've heard it discussed countless times. I've known of its existence for a really long time. I knew the general, everything, of, like, you know, yeah. people have talked about it, so. So it wasn't unfamiliar, even though I had, yeah. I realized I hadn't actually read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to read from the beginning then? The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite and perhaps infinite number of hexagonal galleries with vast air shafts between, surrounded by very low railings. From any of the hexagons, one can see, interminably, the upper and lower floors. The distribution of the galleries is invariable. Twenty shelves, five long shelves per side, cover all the sides except two. Their height, which is the distance from floor to ceiling, scarcely exceeds that of a normal bookcase. One of the free sides leads to a narrow hallway, which opens onto another gallery, identical to the first and to all the rest. To the left and right of the hallway, there are two very small closets. In the first, one may sleep standing up, in the other, satisfy one's fecal necessities. Also through here passes a spiral stairway, which sinks abysmally and soars upwards to remote distances. In the hallway, there is a mirror which faithfully duplicates all appearances. Men usually infer from this mirror that the library is not infinite. If it really were, why this illusory duplication? I prefer to dream that its polished surfaces represent and promise the infinite. Light is provided by some spherical fruit which bear the name of lamps. There are two transversally placed in each hexagon. The light they emit is insufficient, incessant. Like all men of the library, I have traveled in my youth. I have wandered in search of a book, perhaps the catalog of catalogs. Now that my eyes can hardly decipher what I write, I am preparing to die just a few leagues from the hexagon in which I was born. Once I am dead, there will be no lack of pious hands to throw me over the railing. My grave will be the fathomless air. My body will sink endlessly in decay and dissolve in the wind generated by the fall, which is infinite. I say that the library is unending. The idealists argue that the hexagonal rooms are a necessary form of absolute space, or at least of our intuition of space. They reason that a triangular or pentagonal room is inconceivable. The mystics claim that their ecstasy reveals to them a circular chamber containing a great circular book whose spine is continuous and which follows the complete circle of the walls, but their testimony is suspect, their words obscure. This cyclical book is God. Let it suffice now for me to repeat the classic dictum. The library is a sphere whose exact center is any one of its hexagons and whose circumference is inaccessible. 
I must have a different translation because my well, I was says, wondering about that. Yeah, I was like waiting for you to say this word to end it. Whose circumference is unattainable is my version. Unattainable. Okay. Anyway, so you hadn't read the story before, but you'd heard about it. I'm curious what is discussed when they talk about this, because I imagine it's talked about in terms of being either like influential or some kind of classic, or maybe it's referenced in other stories. That's an interesting question. I Usually they just talk about the library. So okay. It's like they talk about the the way the library works, and he's like a philosophical writer, so he's like... Yeah. It's like a kind of a contemplation of the infinite, you know? Right. And so that's what most of the conversation is about. As far as I can remember, when considering this story, I'm pretty sure this story influenced other people to write other things. I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, he's a very influential writer. We could obviously. put that tag in every in every podcast episode. <laughs> pretty sure this story inspired other people to write other things. Pretty sure. I think it's a safe bet. I feel like there's other stories about vast libraries. It's a really cool idea, so why not do it in some way? Um, I think he's actually, this story has been the topic of philosophical discussion by actual philosophers, you know, so like it, it is, well, you know, it's well known, well regarded, well uh, analyzed. Yeah. When uh, we were reading it, when I read it, it reminded me of the uh, story that we just did, the cartographer wasps and the what bees. Oh, yes. What are the bees? Anarchist bees. Anarchist. <laughs> yes, of course. But it reminded me of that because it's like this endless hexagons. It feels like a honeycomb. Right, and then, it's a bee yeah, <laughs> I was literally thinking of bees, this whole book or this whole story. And also there's this sense throughout the story about the current characters having a short lifespan in the context of infinity, whatever. Yeah. And how they're still doing things for future generations. And so he talks about that a little bit, you know, about how he imagines that people are searching for God himself in, in these chambers, but also that maybe if we all took turns, we could try finding the book, right? One person couldn't hope to do it in their lifetime, but if it's worth exploring, like maybe we start now type thing. And it felt like the bee society. Yeah. Passing things on generation to generation. Yeah. Yeah. And and how like the pursuit of knowledge is something that's worth dedicating your entire life to. I mean, this is like one of those stories where I could read it and get like really excited about it for a little bit. And then like I would maybe take a nap <laughs> and then the next day be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to search my whole life for this book. You know, it would like wear off for someone like me immediately. And it's it's really for me kind of like stressful and wild to think about people that do dedicate their entire lifetimes to something that they either won't see in fruition or or that they think is like greater than themselves like what a, what a thing to like dedicate yourself to you're just in these this kind of thing stresses me out and it reminded me of the bees to just be laboring for something that you don't get to see the payoff for that is an interesting thing because um i mean not to go crazy but you know every life has to end incomplete right no matter what you're pursuing it's always going to end incomplete it's like the nature of, of your life, of even no matter what you're pursuing in your life, you know, even if your your goal is to just work minimally so that you can drink on the weekends. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're gonna never finish doing that. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. What do you when do you get your fill? And this is one of those things that it seems like the main character, at least our narrator, is 
happy to to be part of, you know, even though, and I underlined this part because I reread it this morning. Let me see. He says, for while the library contains all verbal structures, all the variations allowed by the 25 orthographic symbols, it includes not a single absolute piece of nonsense. It would be pointless to observe that the finest volume of all the many hexagons that I myself administer is titled Combed Thunder, while another is titled The Plaster Cramp. And another, some word I can't pronounce. So I'm reading this and he goes on to say, those phrases at first apparently incoherent are undoubtedly susceptible to cryptographic or allegorical reading. That reading, that justification of the words order and existence is itself verbal and ex hypothesis already contained somewhere in the library. There is no combination of characters one can make that the divine library has not foreseen and that one or more of its secret tongues does not hide a terrible significance. So he's like kind of implying that like all this like stuff that you would pick off a shelf and you're like this is garbage uh this book title makes no sense i'm reading it and it also makes no sense it seems like only someone who has dedicated their entire existence to figuring out this library could convince themselves that everything is worth something that everything it has meaning (laughs) and that they aren't like being having some joke played on them or something i don't want to like spin this into like a story about like faith or religion necessarily but they have a lot of faith in there being meaning in all of this yeah that's an interesting feature yeah. of this as well you cannot live in this library and read all these books forever and feel like you're searching for something unless you truly believe in its importance its power it's like divine design and someone like me like i said after my little nap would like look at these books and be like this is garbage i can't get behind it he contrasted that belief with was it his father or somebody had found a book was just like what was it mcv repeated over and yes. over again yes. and he's like there's no way that has any meaning in any language anywhere but he beyond the contemplation of the infiniteness of the library and whether it's actually constrained by the mathematical like the very large number is what these books can express or it could be infinite like they're, they're trying to figure this out he kind of makes a comparison with languages like this happens especially in, in america we don't have dialects the way they do in other places but like in german there's uh if you go just a few miles down the road there's slightly different dialects then a few more miles slightly different dialect a few more miles slightly different dialect so you go from the north to the south and by the time you get to the south, it's it's still German, but you go the idea is you go far enough, it's a totally different language. And so he's saying, like, he says specifically a few stories up or a few floors up from here, they're speaking a different dialect, but a hundred fl- I don't remember what number he gave, but a long way away, they're speaking a totally incomprehensible language. And so the idea is if it is infinite, you keep going, they're gonna speak things that are what look like gibberish in these books, but are actually represented by that, which is not necessarily true. <laughs> But that's like the the contemplation, right? Yeah. You know, printing letters in a book, you're not constrained by anything, but speech sounds are constrained by the vocal tract and the way the mouth can, you know, you can't put certain combinations of letters don't work next to each other because your tongue can't move that fast to articulate both of them. (laughs) (laughs) This story, you compared it with the cartographer wasps, anarchist bees story. I was thinking of um, even the Kurt Vonnegut story we did recently or the um, Sturgeon story. 
all these like science fiction stories, even fantasy stories are like, we call them speculative stories because they speculate about circumstances. And then science fiction is defined by it's a science or technology speculation. Fantasy is defined by it's a speculation about magical things or other right. worlds and stuff that are kind of like magical. And um, this is, feels more like a uh, speculation in the terms of philosophy. So it's like philosophical fiction. So it's still speculative, but it's like, let me concretize some philosophical inquiry, you know, like contemplating the infinite. What does that look like? And then you turn that into fiction and that's your speculation. It still requires you to introduce a character who has to um, wrestle with the implications of yes. this speculated situation, but it's at heart, that's where it's coming from. The idea is, let me think about the infinite and how can I express that in this concrete way? And then they throw a character in there and what does he do with that? And right. then that's what creates the fiction. I'd be cur curious to like put together a volume of quote unquote philosophical fiction. I think that one story we did, uh, Ursula Le Guin, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, could be in that same vein because it was like that story creates like a, a moral quandary that philosophers can debate, right? So that's philosophical fiction in a certain way too. There's, I'm sure there's dozens, like dozens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's probably a couple here and there. I'm, I imagine <laughs> something has been written about this. Uh, there's something inspired by this. You mentioned something about having like a quandary or whatever. I, I forget how you phrased it, but then like inserting a character into it and seeing how, and then that character's being inserted into this possibility or whatever is what creates the fiction. So it is interesting to think of a story like the one that we just read, because you always kind of wonder, how did we come up with this? Like what was first, the chicken or the egg type thing? And it is helpful to kind of know if you do know what came first, what you as the reader should maybe like really be focusing on, right? Because I'm usually one of those readers that, like I said, I come at this and I'm reading it and I'm like, man, it takes a certain kind of character, a certain kind of person to want to read all these books. And that's almost missing the point, right? Because the point is, oh my God, like think about, like you said, what is infinity? What does that look like? Can we decide if it exists? And it's kind of missed on a reader like me that cares more about the stories of humans in these kind of situations. But it is always like a backdoor for readers like me into these philosophical questions. Yeah. So I read from the beginning, I read two paragraphs and the first paragraph was like, this is the nature of the library. And yeah. the second paragraph was, and this is me. <laughs> this is a character, the narrator, person who's scrawling this little essay down before he dies. So the first paragraph is like, okay, that's the situation. That's the contemplation. The second paragraph is here's the story. There's a character doing something. And so I think the order in which they're presented kind of suggests like Borges's like focus, like he's interested yeah. in, in the Infinity and this the character is necessary for the fiction, obviously. And he knows that. He's a great writer. He knows how to accomplish these things. But the first paragraph is where the action is, right? This is like, you know, you think about any story, the advice to get your reader in, uh, engaged in a story is present the action. And so the action is, here's the nature of the library. Here's the nature of infinity. But the, the character is still there. You could probably look at the way in which stories unfold is like where the hook is, is to see what kind of bait the writer is using. But at yeah. the same time, they're both there. If you take it as a whole, like if you take it, the whole thing, character, story, and situation are all represented. It's also, I think, hard sometimes to to know, like you said, am I paying attention to the bait that the writer is using by seeing like what order they do it? Or like sometimes there's stories like this where there's an element of world building that almost has to take place first. Yeah. So sometimes it's like a result of the genre. He introduces the character so much faster, though, than I think some of these other stories might. Yes. 
So I was thinking about H.G. Wells' story we did, The Country of the Blind. Yeah. And the whole beginning of that, it's like a um, an explorer's kind of journal. It's like, we went to this faraway land and it kind of describes how they got there before he even discovered it's the country of the blind. And so that, you know, he was writing in a, in a he was mimicking a genre, basically, yeah. you know, which we discussed on that episode. But I can see this story, like if this were brought to the workshop, I might suggest... Like, I think this story works as is. Like, this is fine. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't rewrite Borges, right? You wouldn't? Are you sure? No. It sounds like you're about to. This is but fine. Some re- writer that I didn't, like, trust fully, maybe. Yes. And in the workshop, you're, you're trying to give feedback. You're trying to, like, say, maybe try this, maybe try that. And they don't have to. You're just offering suggestions. But to bring it more to the fiction side of the speculative, I would say, why don't we see the character in the first paragraph and, the like, see the layout of the library through the actions the characters taking like well, let's watch him walk through it let's watch him like do something during his day that would be kind of standard advice you would give for um introducing a world in a story or a novel or something is watching a character in action so that you can understand that character within the world that is being depicted and get the reader involved in it that way because that's that is the most powerful thing about fiction right it works this way and i think it's done this way because that's what this story is about but there's like a um a spectrum between between fully immersive like show, if you will, like, yeah. that dramatize the action so that we can infer what you're trying to explain to me or just summarize the explanation. And um, neither is correct. Like the show right. tell thing, neither is correct, but it's the what you're trying to impart on the reader, what, what you're focusing on. Yeah. You could almost make the argument that like uh, you can tell what this author wants you to focus on given the length of the story too, because yeah. we don't we don't see the character complete anything. He's just kind of like it's like a rumination of sorts. It's not even like an yeah. essay. He's just like Although kind of telling I would, you. I would suggest that not completing something. It's kind of the point that like when you're confronted with the yeah. infant, you can't complete things. So sure, you could also be doing the thing that all the literary critics do, though. Like, oh no, oh, this yeah. is actually a commentary. But like that's when, an when argument, I, right? Yes. <laughs> when I when I look at a piece like this and I know how short it is, I can also kind of focus on the fact that like I'm not gonna watch this main character get to the end because like you said, that you know, that's impossible in this thing. It's meta in that way to comment that way. But so I know then that this is not about his personal journey so much as the concept of can this yeah. be done almost? Yeah. The concept is more important than the character in a certain, the way this is put together. And like, as this is like humming along, I hate to like talk about like length, but like I pay attention to that. Like I look at how long a story is about to be so that as I'm reading it, I know like maybe what's a red herring, maybe what's a subplot and maybe what is like really the crux of the story. And in a story like this, I'm reading along and I'm realizing how much time we're spending first at the beginning, kind of world building, how much then we're revisiting the concept of like explaining in theory, these big chunks of what they know about these libraries. They're, you know, he's not talking about himself. He's just telling us in first person what he has been told about people before him that have all encountered the same thing. He's not really telling us what it's like for him throughout. He's like a narrator in the sense that he's telling us a story, but he's not as much a character in the sense that he has this huge arc 
But like you said, this is an author that knows how to do fiction and how if he wants to explore something like this, he has to make it kind of human and tangible. And so there is something at the end here where he's that last sentence. I don't know, it might be different in your translation, but in mine, is a, it says, my solitude is cheered by that elegant hope. And he's kind of talking about, you know, they could be wrong, but he's really hoping that all of this is for this purpose. And that's how he justifies kind of toiling along here, not really knowing. So there is an arc in that sense. He's kind of saying like, this is how infinite it is. This is how little and how much we know. And yet... This is my conclusion, you know? So it's not, a, it's not a traditional story in that sense, but like, you know, like we're talking about, we can tell this is philosophical because it is contained that way. And and the philosophical part of it might not just be for us to wonder aloud, but for us to maybe reach the same conclusion that the character did, which is that even if it is infinite, and you could argue knowledge in the world is currently, and we don't live in a hexagonal library catacomb, right? That it's yeah. still worth looking shit up on Wikipedia, you know? Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, I don't know if he deliberately did this, but I looked it up. I originally thought, because he said there's 22 letters in the alphabet that's being yeah, used in these books. I think it was like 23. Was it, it was 22? 20, 22 plus the period, comma, and space. It makes 25 letters. Ancient Greek had 24 oh, letters. Yeah. And I, so my first thought was, what is this alphabet? Is it Greek or something? So I looked, and I was like, oh, no, that's 24 letters. And then Phoenician, which was the original alphabet. All alphabetic writing systems derived from Phoenician, like Cyrillic, Roman, Greek, even like um, Hebrew writing system. <laughs> but all these alphabets derive from the original Phoenician alphabet. They, they add like English, the Roman alphabet adds a couple letters. Even we've added letters since the Romans, right? Other writing systems are like that are not related to that are syllabic writing systems. So like cuneiform is syllabic and the point is that all these books are written with those 22 letters plus comma, period, space. And so that comprises 25 characters that can be used. But if you think like even the English alphabet adds a couple letters, you add a few letters, you then you add, think about the real world and how is information encoded? Are you adding more to that? It just extends the infinite, right? Extends right. that very large number. Right. I guess you don't extend the infinite. Although I don't want to get into it. There are ways to extend the infinite. There's like orders of <sighs> infinity which is insane. Uh. <laughs> there was actually a mathematician in the 19th century who started doing work on infinity and he figured all this stuff out and then he went to a madhouse. Oh uh, yeah, that sounds about <laughs> yeah. right. I too would explore these concepts if not for... <laughs> I love of my Fear sanity. Driven yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, it's not that I don't want to think about it, John, or I'm, I'm incapable. It's just that I know better. Yeah. So it's exploring the real world is also endless. Like, yes, ostensibly, we'll never complete our understanding of of everything in the world because it's, if not infinite, functionally infinite for our capacities, our very limited lifespans and capacities for understanding. I wish someone would have told this character that there's such thing as functionally infinite. <laughs> because that because that you know what I mean? They're yes. so they're so caught up in is it infinite or isn't it? It's like doesn't matter because you personally will never know. And also, like your whole humankind species may never know because he's trying to trace back all the people before him that have tried parts of this. It's like But that's where the, the arc you were talking about comes in. He ends on yeah. hope, right? He yes. like he doesn't use the word functionally infinite, but he says it's a very large number, it might as <laughs> yeah. well be infinite, you know. Yeah. But he understands like it's just too big for me. It's too big for anybody. Yes. 
but yes. we're, we're doing something like, and that's what gives them hope. Right. <laughs> that's like a, that's also a cult mentality. I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Like it's not about me. It's about the leaders. And I'm happy to dedicate my life to the greater good. Cult mentality comes out of human mentality. Right. Yeah. It's just uh, an application of something. Yeah. We can't blame these cult leaders. <laughs> well, we can't. <laughs> oh. There's moral implications. In that, right? <laughs> They're just humans like us. Trying to make a buck. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is one of those stories where I'm glad I I had to read it a second time because I knew that there's probably so much that I wasn't totally grasping as I tried to read it for maybe a character arc at first, you know? Oh, yeah. There's a good question about, like, what comprises a story. Yeah. I think there is one, but, you know. There that's is, a- yeah, but it's, it's different. And so I always just kind of hope for or expect, like, a very straightforward story. <laughs> and pretty quickly for this one, I was like, okay, it's not one of those. And so everything I've read, I need to read much more closely because... You can kind of like hum along in certain stories and like like not read closely and still kind of get it. You know what I mean? And this is one where it's like, no, every single word is building a reality that I'm not fully in tune with. So I really have to appreciate each little detail to understand this conclusion at the end. But anyway, like when I reread it, it was like it came into like a much sharper focus in terms of what it wanted me to, to know. You know what I mean? I kind of read it the first time for myself and the second time for what the writer was trying to convince. Oh, that's interesting because you're right. There are two different ways of reading it in those modes. And, you know, every time you pick up a story, if you don't know anything about it, like I said, I'd heard about this story many, many, many times. I basically knew the whole outline of it, but I hadn't read it. So I knew it. So I was like, I was on board. I knew what to expect. But if you just come at this and you think, oh, it's like, it could be, could be anything from, you know, just a little fairy tale to some like dense, like uh, Joycean Finnegan's Wake or something. Yes. (laughs) You know, no idea then you kind of like your expectations are give me a story give me a character trying to do something yeah 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 we kind of touched on this earlier but maybe that's as close as i'm gonna get to a takeaway for a story like this which is you don't have to write about like a generational ship you know and like create this like long plot right for chapters and chapters to explore at least like a philosophical concept like you've described it in this episode or a sci-fi premise whatever you can just have an idea and then insert a character who reflects on it and lands on one or the other side of that argument maybe or you can do the thing where you blow it out and you make it plot based and try to give the reader something that they're kind of expecting like like I said I usually am expecting when I pick something up you know something with dialogue something with multiple characters something that covers a certain period of time right this is like an essay or a reflection almost So it's a different type of story. But if you can kind of tell yourself, like, I'm interested in this what if or this premise or this concept, and this is one way that you can make it fiction. Yeah, my takeaway is basically that, too. But more like what I was talking about before. (laughs) I was thinking about what I was talking about before about science fiction, fantasy fiction, and then philosophical fiction. I think we often like you can speculate about anything. And whatever the topic is, you can turn that into fiction, right? You add a character and you got fiction. So if you're going to speculate, 
speculate about platonic forms and maybe you have a character like doing yeah. something with that. That's philosophy, right? Or it doesn't even have to be, it, it can be non-fantasy and non-science fiction and non-philosophy be something else. But whatever you're interested in, you can turn that into fiction. Yes. And I talked before about that spectrum between like the most dramatized, like in the immediate moment kind of like action to action to action character moving through a world versus kind of a summarizing description. Like you can find where your idea, what you want to speculate about and how you get the character into it or falls on that spectrum to like present the story and like really wrestle with what aspect of that you're most interested in. I would argue this, what we just read is harder to write than a story. Yes. Like this is hard to make it feel complete and powerful and not just kind of like what is obviously less than a story. You have to express the ideas in a way that feel immediate to the reader. Yeah. And the way you do that in fiction is to get a human being yeah, like to, to understand character. it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You could use that one. Give me three more readings. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.